Russia continues cyber operations targeting Ukraine and its prison for a collaborator of the Dark Overlord. These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hi, I'm Anna Delaney. Russian forces remain massed on Ukraine's border. The big question, what happens next? Well, joining me to discuss is Matthew Schwartz, executive editor of Data Breach Today and Europe. Matt, you've written that cyber alarms have been sounding in the West. Indeed, Anna. The White House has dispatched its top cyber official, Anne Neuberger, to Brussels this week to coordinate with her EU and NATO counterparts on cyber defense. If Russia escalates, and we don't know if that's going to happen, but if it does, many experts believe that cyber attacks will play a large component. Depending on how the U.S. and NATO respond, Russia might then directly target their critical infrastructure. Such attacks might be disguised as ransomware, but however they get deployed, experts say the risk to critical infrastructure, especially in Europe, is real. So the Washington think tank Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, this week says that there's particular concern by the West and its allies on the impact a cyber attack could have on aviation, water safety, energy, and financial services. Last week, meanwhile, Britain's National Cybersecurity Center issued an alert to all UK organizations, urging them to review their cyber resilience capabilities One of the big concerns there is the potential for spillover from Russian cyber attacks that target Ukraine or possibly beyond. And of course, Matt, we've seen this before. In 2015 and again in 2016, Russia managed to crash the power grid in parts of Ukraine in the dead of winter. If President Vladimir Putin orders an invasion, could Moscow simply turn out the lights? So Russia has likely been pre-positioning malware on systems in numerous countries, including Ukraine. So if it does decide to invade, it could, in theory, cause disruption, aiding its military maneuvers. That is the bad news. The good news, critical infrastructure folks say, is that power systems are typically very difficult to disrupt. You often have to model the systems that you're going after, create literal physical representations of them, and then figure out how to disrupt them remotely. That takes a lot of work and a lot of effort, a lot of research and modeling. But of course, Russia could also cause disruption in other ways. So there's the NotPetya attack that a lot of people are remembering now from 2017. That was disguised as crypto locking malware. Really, it was destructive malware. It also had worm-like capabilities, meaning that although Moscow targeted organizations in Ukraine, the worm quickly got out of control, spreading causing up to $10 billion in commercial damages worldwide, lots of chaos, disruption in the pharmaceutical sector, worldwide shipping, and more. What are the likely scenarios for what happens next with Russia and Ukraine? That's a great question. And a lot of experts believe that Russian President Vladimir Putin hasn't yet decided what to do next. He's giving himself options, but maybe seeing which way to go still. So, This week, CSIS had a press briefing. Seth G. Jones, who's its director of international security, said Putin may, well, not escalate. But if he does, Jones outlined six military scenarios. 
Now, five of these involve some kind of advancement of military forces, ground forces, into the country backed by air and sea forces. Likely, this would include seizing territory in the East at the least. But one of the really interesting things Jones said is that one of the military scenarios would be a decision, and I'm quoting here, actually not to invade, but to continue to use irregular means in Ukraine. So this would be a combination of offensive cyber operations and also proxies and partners operating inside Ukraine, possibly some Russian forces operating out of uniform in Ukraine too. So I think this is fascinating because it suggests that Putin could keep this conflict that he's manufactured with Ukraine simmering indefinitely. Psychologically, at least, that would seem to serve as a potent threat to Ukraine, NATO and others. Definitely. It helps Putin get across his criticism of NATO potentially expanding by adding Ukraine to its membership. And it's important to highlight that there isn't just this standoff involving forces and the occasional disruptive attack. For example, as John Holtquist at Mandiant, who's in charge of their threat intelligence, has noted, there's a number of cyber activities and operations that have been going on already for at least the past year, including cyber espionage, information operations designed to destabilize the Ukrainian government, as well as some of the disruptive cyber attacks we've seen recently, like the website defacements and the wiper malware that was deployed against Ukrainian government sites last month. So Russia's historically shown with cyber attacks, and especially with Ukraine, that it doesn't mind experimenting, perhaps seeing if things get out of control and behaving in an unpredictable manner. So that's prompted a diplomatic question now of, for Russia, how much cyber might be too much for the West? So Seth Jones at CSIS says, one lingering question he has is, Diplomatically, are some red lines, as in do not cross, red lines being communicated to Moscow? For example, what might be the reaction from the US, Europe, or NATO if Russia decided to cut undersea telecommunications cables or to disrupt satellites? How might the US and the West respond if there were large-scale disruptions of critical infrastructure? Or if its own military command and control systems got disrupted, even inadvertently, by cyber attacks? So this whole cyber operation element adds yet more room for chaos and unpredictability to be brought to bear. So there remains a serious risk of things quickly spiraling out of control. Still a lot of uncertainty and and events seem to be changing by the minute. But thank you very much, Matt, for this update. Thank you, Anna. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. An associate of the hacking and extortion group known as the Dark Overlord has been sentenced to three years in prison for trading stolen identities. Our managing editor of security and technology, Jeremy Kirk, shares more details on the story. About five years ago, there was a spate of very mean online attacks. A group calling itself the Dark Overlord broke into the networks of schools, healthcare organizations, and businesses. But there was no malware involved. They gain access, steal sensitive data, and aggressively demand ransoms through harassment campaigns. 
With schools, for example, they take student files and then call or text message menacing messages to their parents. For healthcare organizations, they'd email its owner or operator with intimidating personal information about that person's family. They tried to make the victim sign a fake contract which was signed with the name Adolf Hitler. These kind of antics put the group squarely in the sights of law enforcement, and another person on the fringes of the group is facing the consequences. Slava Dimitriev of Canada has been sentenced to three years in prison for trading in stolen personal information. Dimitriev was accused of buying and selling stolen identity information, which included things like social security numbers, names, and birth dates. And he was selling this stuff on the Alphabay marketplace, which was a dark web marketplace that now no longer exists. But perhaps the most interesting accusation against Dimitrov is that he interacted with the Dark Overlord. Prosecutors alleged that he supplied the group with access credentials for the network of a New York dentist in June 2016. The dentist was breached and then extorted. And about a month later, prosecutors say Dimitrov received a spreadsheet from the Dark Overlord that contained 200,000 stolen identities. Dimitrov's court file unfortunately does not shed more light on how investigators caught on to his association with the Dark Overlord. His indictment is only three pages, and it doesn't mention the group at all. However, the court file shows there are several documents still under seal. Only the press release from the Justice Department actually mentions the hacking group. The reason for this is probably revealing more information about how Dmitriev interacted with the Dark Overlord might give other suspects a heads up, and that could mean that more arrests may be pending. Authorities have arrested a couple of other people that interacted with the Dark Overlord, but the group has had great operational security practices and it left investigators grasping at slim clues. But Dmitriev's case shows that even though the Dark Overlord has been inactive now for several years, Law enforcement is still trying to shine a light on it. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. And finally, can zero trust and risk management programs coexist? Well, this is a title of a panel discussion at our upcoming virtual Zero Trust Summit on February 22nd and 23rd. You can register on our site. The panel, led by our Senior Vice President of Editorial, Tom Field, explores the interactions between a zero-trust implementation and a risk management program. One of the panelists is the quite brilliant Grant Schneider, Senior Director for Cybersecurity Services at Venable, who's previously served as the U.S. Federal CISO. Here he is, sharing recommendations for organizations being directed to implement zero-trust programs. I think it's really important for organizations to figure out where they're at. I would argue almost all organizations, whether they've ever contemplated zero trust, put that in air quotes or not, are somewhere in a zero trust journey, right? If they were doing any security things, they were already somewhere. And so starting by figuring out, you know, this is not a throw out what we were doing and do everything new and different. It's figure out what were we doing? What are the aspects of our controls and our programs and our processes that we have in place? How are they contributing? How are they working together? I think Zero Trust is really a, you know, make sure that all of your security apparatus are being done with an overarching focus on how is this securing our environment? How is it helping prevent people from getting in, but detecting and minimizing the, the impact? impact that someone can have once they are in. So 
a bit of a take a step back, assess where you're at in the journey, and then where you need to get to, right? What are your risk tolerances? What do you most need to protect? What are your high value assets? How do they interact? And then you can kind of start building out your plan going forward. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time. Thank you.